Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Uh, today we have a real farmer in the room, a real um, Southlander now, we like to call her. Uh, she's been to London and back. Uh, there's plenty of things in her um, her resume. Uh, she calls herself a food producer, a community doer, and a mum. She started life as a dairy farmer's daughter in Dannyverk, uh, shifted to Katty Katty to being a kiwi fruit farmer with her family, and then the world was her oyster. So welcome, Bernadette Hunt. You've got a uh, very long resume, including uh, winning a primary industry leadership award. So yeah, you've done a lot in your short time on earth, um, based on my time on earth. So good job. Welcome to the show. Thank and you. So Thanks for having me. <laughs> can you fill in the gaps? There's a lot there. You're even t- into sport in a big way. That's a new thing that I didn't realize, uh, rowing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, there has been all sorts. So yeah, you've the the my childhood you've kind of summed up well. Um dairy farming and then Kiwi fruit orcharding. Um dad or dad was a shepherd actually originally and always ran some sheep and some beef as well on the spare blocks on the Kiwi fruit orchard. And I loved also getting across the road to the neighbours dairy farm and rearing a pet calf each year um, that they kindly let me have and doing the school calf shows and stuff. So very much a rural upbringing. Um but, you know, in the midst of all of that, parents, you know, like, you know, through the 80s, you know, I had my uh, young childhood through the 80s, so pretty tough times for my parents. So, saw, wasn't really fully aware of it, but with hindsight, I can, I have some, you know, a bit of awareness of how tough things were, I guess. And we never had, uh, had money to splash around, but we never wanted for any anything either um, and then I left school and moved to Auckland uh, was talked out of doing teaching by guidance counsellors at school ironically um, and so I went and did a computing pro, uh, course and a business computing course worked in Auckland for a couple of years actually for TVNZ in administrative roles and then uh, did my OE well started my OE by spending four years living in Sydney uh, which is where I started rowing and um, gained a real love for that sport and after four years there working in various IT related roles moved to London and well it was really a, an 18 month OE um, and spent a year of that living in London but traveling around Europe and stuff while I was there too again working in IT related roles um, and rowing uh, and I got to compete at uh, the British National Champs and at Women's Henley Regatta so some pretty special times there and rowing was a great way to get to know people and have a bit of a social life as as well so loved my time there but always um, missed New Zealand and didn't ultimately I came back to New Zealand because I didn't want to spend my life in corporate world I had a great career in front of me if I'd wanted it earning loads of money um, all of that kind of stuff but I I didn't see myself as a city girl long term so I um, always wanted to return to New Zealand came back to really get my teeth into competitive rowing um, but that wasn't to be. So I trained out of, I moved to Cambridge, um, worked for a fern nursery actually, selling ferns wholesale to garden centres and supermarkets and all sorts. And, uh, but that was kind of around my rowing where I trained three times a day, six or seven days a week, um, you know, re, you know, kind of re, training and rowing at the elite level. Uh, but my body just wasn't up to it in the end. Um, there's a reason why rowers generally are, are built, you know, very broadly. Uh, my, my rowing training, my muscles got too strong for my bones. <laughs> 
<laughs> basically and I got stress fractures in my ribs and um you know it just kind of wasn't to be for me but I feel like I gave it everything I could saw how far I could go with it couldn't quite go to the top but um yeah um and then ultimately kind of gave that away and and went decided to go back to teaching actually uh, so I became an adult student at Waikato University where I trained to become a teacher because I'd decided by then that I wanted to live my life in rural New Zealand um and I that was a a job that I could have in any rural town, you know, I, every rural town needs teachers. So I, you know, it was something I'd always wanted to do. So I went, I, I went back and did that as an adult student. Um, and during nearly, nearly at the end of the story-ish, <laughs> during that time, met my now husband and um, we, he's originally from England, but had come out here for farming. We decided that we wanted to go farming together uh, found a farm in Southland that we loved and moved down here and I started my teaching career down here and we settled down here on the farm we're still on now and that was about 17 years ago. Wow and what a resume Um, and that just (laughs) shows you well it just shows you uh, the commitments you've made and everything you've done and why you're a very good advocate for the farming industry now. Uh, it was a bit of a quaint story I read too online that you um, and your husband sort of used to, when you were a teacher, you used to go out and sit on the tractor with him while he was chopping silage or something. I, I see that happening more and more these days where uh, people come out in the evening and work with contractors. So good job. Now, you're, you're farming, um, perhaps you would say northwest of Gore, is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it's pretty much due north of Gore, actually. Yeah, sort of near Waikaka. Right. And what do you farm on on that property? So we farm, we're sheep and beef traders. So we don't have uh, breeding breeding herds or flocks. Uh, so we're traders and we also grow a lot of arable crops. So about a third of our farmland is in arable crops. So uh, wheat, barley, oats. We also grow peas and beans, uh, a bit of grass seed this year as well. And we run a small ag contracting business as well. Oh, and, and there's a little bit of dairy grazing in the mix as well. Uh, so yeah, pretty versatile. And basically, you know, we we bought our farm. It's not a family inherited farm or anything like that. We bought it with a huge amount of debt just before the global recession when banks were still throwing money at farmers. <laughs> uh, we would never have been able to buy it under the, under the equity ratio we had at the time. Um, so we had to create this business that brought in income at all times of the year. Uh, so we created this amazing machine that brought in income at all different times of the year, but it also means there's not a lot of downtime. Um, but that's that's how we've how we've kind of built our business is sheer hard work, uh, very diverse. We we have our eggs in lots of baskets because we couldn't afford to have a failure in a year. We just weren't in a position we could where we could have carried that. So eggs in lots of different baskets, so that if um, one was down, chances are another was up, and we could always ride out the storms. Yeah, and so listeners. This is why we have um, Bernadette on. Uh, from the background to where she is today, we want uh, someone to talk about the real uh, issues that are happening inside the, the farm gate. Uh, effectively, it's easy for uh, us all to have a grizzle and a groan about stuff, but um, the hunts have come from, as she said, as Bernadette says, from a background of um, having no family money in the business so they got into biz- into this business from ground zero. A lot of people would say that's impossible. Well, it isn't, and the hunts are um, uh, living proof of that. So, Bernadette, what would you say is the hardest part about surviving in the farming systems that we operate and governance of today? What what is the big issues? Uh, 
I mean, if you're giving a state of the nation speech today, what would it sound like? Yeah, so look, if 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 it was only about what's inside the farm gate, then farming is is amazing, and we we love it. And the last season is a classic example of that. If we were only having to to worry about what was in our control, or, or even you know, there's always some things out of our control in farming. But if we only had to worry about what was inside the farm gate, then then life would be great. We would be absolutely loving our life. Problem is that's not how it works, and it feels like at every turn there's somebody wanting to take. A chunk out of us, or a crack out of us, and um, make it harder. And I've, I don't know any other industry where people, where it feels like everybody else feels like, or everybody else is accusing us of, um, of a being greedy, b being environmental vandals, see being animal haters, like, I don't know, a single farmer out there that wakes up in the morning and goes, today I'm going to go and wreck my farm and be cruel to my animals. But it feels like that's what the world thinks about us. And that's really, really hard. Isn't it? I, I often think being, I think dairy farming sometimes gets strung out more, though, yeah, we often find out here that we are in Western Southland, not far from you guys. There is issues on every front, be it weather, be it staffing, be it the cost of you know input and all of that that's gone up. And every single day, farming is hung out to dry. In fact, if it, if it was any other industry, this would actually be a case of, you know, you'd have people in an uproar. But somehow it seems to be open season for farmers, especially now. Yeah, and I think there's there's a perception out there that farmers are loaded, and so there's a mm. bit of a tall poppy thing goes on. I think I think that's some of it, um, and people just don't understand that everything we have is put into our farm. I mean, when we bought our farm, every last dollar went into buying it uh, with massive amounts of debt to the point where my husband had quite a nice car, which we sold to buy an old dunger car <laughs> so that we could buy a trailer that we could cut calves with so that we could rear calves. And that was part of our income strategy for the season. I, I, you know, and I would be out there, you know, when our kids were babies, I remember putting my youngest one in a backpack and going out to feed 350 calves um, in a morning. And we're not, you know, we're not dairy farmers. So we did calf rearing as a way to, to try and get ahead and my daughter would would have her sleeps sitting like I'd take the backpack off my back once she was asleep and I'd sit it on the on the ground and she would be asleep in the calf pen next to me while I fed calves you know it was hard work I was always exhausted but that's the life we chose I wouldn't change it for anything and now the kids are older and um showing calves at competitions and um you know my youngest daughter got home from school just before and she was she straight out to play with the pet goats and the pet calves in the paddock in front of the house it's the life we wanted it's and it's still the life we want um but yeah in terms of state of the nation you know look life inside the farm gate as a farmer is fabulous uh it's just um hard to take sometimes a the negativity that's thrown us and b this expectation that we can just shell out money for a farm plan or a resource consent or a um I don't know, the latest box ticking exercise <laughs> and, and it's no big deal. People just seem to go, oh yeah, farm, that, it's only going to cost $2,000 for a farmer and that's only going to cost $5,000 and they'll be right. Would you trip over $2,000 in the street and walk past it? <laughs> we work hard for it just like everyone else does. And that's, that's the challenge at the moment. The national pastime is how to farm the farmer. Um, and there's plenty doing it, and they take these increments unearned, as a colleague used to say. In fact, a former president of Fed Farmers South and a couple before me, he gave me that term, unearned increments. And I used to think, oh, that sounds a bit grubby. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, 
using the word increment, but um, when I realized what he meant, um, uh, it's it was there then, it's there today. It's just, it appears, and I think you're endorsing this, um, Bernadette, that it's out of balance. The, you know, the redistribution through the regulatory machine into the hands of uh, administrators and busybodies has just got out of balance. Uh, we know there's some of them are going to always be there, but you're fine. It's it's intriguing, isn't it? I think same problems, different day. Uh, it's just these seem to be on steroids at the moment. So you have had an advocacy uh, role around your community as well, uh, in, in, including fed farmers. But there's some other um, roles you've had, like um, the Kids Hub project and the fundraising for that. It sounds like you put with some others, perhaps I didn't read the entire document, um, a lot of effort into fundraising and you raised a lot of money for that that concept. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when my eldest daughter was born, um, I did, as many people do, antenatal classes through the local parent centre. My husband and I attended those. And once she was born, I, I remained being a member of the parent centre and would attend music sessions with my little baby and um, that kind of stuff. And, it, you know, they run a whole lot of uh, parent education stuff. And I got really involved in that organisation. I liked what it stood for, um, which fundamentally was, was about... Um, originally Parent Centre was formed on giving women the right to have a say in aspects of their uh, pregnancy and childbirth. It was where the midwifery kind of system was almost found, not not quite founded in New Zealand, but the ability for women to choose that, you know, if they want to give birth at home or if they want to give birth in a hospital or if they want to have an epidural or not, those kinds of things, you know, and that's what it was founded on. And I really liked those values and it had evolved into education of parents. So I got heavily involved in that organisation to cut a long story short, like a few years later, I was president, and it was, and I was friends with the president of the local play centre as, oh no, the local toy library as well, and she was friends with the president of the local play centre. All three organisations were looking for a home, um, and all three organisations effectively served different served different needs to the same group of people, parents of um, young young children, but we all needed a home, so we we set about going. Well, actually, it would make a lot of sense for us all to be housed in the same in the same building, save some overheads, save some fundraising, all of that kind of stuff. So we looked around and there was no suitable location. Uh, so we spoke to the local council and we were like, well, you know, is there a building that exists that we could use? And there wasn't. So we were like, oh, well, how hard can it be? Should we look about building one? Would the council give us, you know, lend us some land or lease us some land to build on? So um, that's where it all began. <laughs> and um, the project grew and so we decided to build um, a building that would house all three of us. And then from there, it became apparent that we were missing an opportunity if all we did was house those three organisations. There was a lot of other facilities and, and services being provided to those same people that if we could house all of that in one space, what an amazing community asset. So that sounded quite good. So we kind of got on with that. And then the next thing became, how do you get people in the door that aren't already attracted to those organisations? Because those organisations attract kind of, um, or traditionally attracted white middle class I guess and there was a whole bunch of people that arguably needed the services more that struggled to get or struggled to take that step through the door so that was where the idea of the adjacent playground came in that if if, if people want to come to this great playground and they see what's going on in the kids hub um, then the kids might go oh can we go play in there too and they get a foot in the door and see that it's not such a scary place so yeah eventually that's that's what we built and I can't, can't remember the total off the top of my head I think it was a 
oh, I can't remember. I think it was a $1.7 million project in total, um, which we opened the doors of the Kids Hub itself, which was, was I think was about $1.4 million uh, in 18 months, and then set about fundraising for the rest of the playground um, in the period of time after that. Uh, and it was basically three of us drove the project, and then we had a committee as well, um, ran massive fundraisers every single month for about 18 months. It was a huge effort, but an incredibly rewarding thing to be involved in. Yeah, well, and, and you know, listening uh, to you, uh, you can see why you are considered a community leader. And this show, we actually talk about a lot of uh, how a lot about how community is what's going to drive, um, hopefully, a, a process away from decentralized thinking. You know, so it's decentralized thinking. So away from centralization. Sorry, I always get that the wrong way. Um, so. What's your next project? Have you got Have you got anything on the agenda right now? You uh, you're obviously getting built into ready for winter with the, the farming, but yeah, it's an interesting question actually. Uh, to be perfectly honest, so I was obviously heavily loved that, involved in that Kids Hub project and been heavily involved in Feds. Um, I felt like I we we were very much on the outer during COVID, and um, and. Uh, to be honest, I felt fairly slapped in the face by the community. Um, you know, we, I think our stand with, with um, COVID vaccines was fairly well known. I was reasonably outspoken about it. It was nothing to do with, my, my stand was nothing to do with whether people should or shouldn't take the vaccine. It didn't even ever pass comment on what I thought about the vaccine, but I was very against the mandates and, um, and I spoke out very strongly about that. I know several people who were absolutely shafted as a result of those mandates who had very valid reasons for not taking the vaccine and that should be their own personal choice but anyway by standing up and and, and I also felt very strongly about um, farming groups including federated farmers pushing their members so hard to, to to comply because I didn't feel that was any of federated farmers business or beef and lambs or dairy and zeds or any of the other myriad of people that decided to get involved in medical advice over that period of time. I just thought it was nuts. And I, I saw people um, disappearing into back corners of their workshops rather than participating in the community when actually that was when they most needed to feel a sense of community. But people were just getting um, sidelined and I was watching mental health issues arise because of it. It was heartbreaking. So I spoke out really strongly against that, that and as a result I felt really marginalised by the community that I'd worked so hard to be a part of. Um, and it's interesting now, I don't feel like anybody's marginalising me now. I, th I think a lot of people may be um, have seen that that the way that that was handled was wrong and with the benefit of hindsight you know they've kind of seen that um but I don't know I have I can't forget so easily <laughs> um and it's making me hesitant about how involved I get in the community and to be perfectly honest it's only in the last two or three months that I've really feel like I could walk around town with my head up um I really got into the habit of being extremely busy going to town with my head down too busy to talk to people um wasn't really too busy I just didn't really feel like I wanted to <laughs> um so it's t yeah so I don't know what the next project is I'm still heavily involved in feds I still you know I don't think you ever, and it's like a marriage, you don't necessarily agree with everything your your other half says or does, but that doesn't mean that you throw the whole relationship out. <laughs> um, and I fundamentally agree with what Federated Farmers does and um, the role they play and the part that I can play in that. Um, 
So I'm still heavily involved in that. I'm actually, I've just taken on my own little um, side business, I guess, of uh, supporting people. I've, I t- undertook a personal health journey last year, lost 25 kilos, got myself healthy, feel like a whole new person, um, feel absolutely transformed as a result of it. And so now I'm helping other people um, to achieve the same thing. And I'm loving doing that. So I guess it's not the massive big community project, but still helping people. That's a real core thing for me. Um, and, and more involved in my kids stuff as well. I'm president of the local gymnastics club that my daughter's involved in. My other daughter's down at boarding school in Invercargill, so that's a lot of road time and heavily involved in our own farming business. It doesn't all leave much room for too much else just at the moment, but who knows? <laughs> Thank you. Well, and uh, I was listening to you. You were you're saying things that got back to normal, Bernadette, as you know, where, where, where you saw those walls come up during COVID. You feel things are back to normal now? Mm, no, I don't know what normal is anymore. No, there's a new normal. Uh, I think there's a new normal. Um <laughs> Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of people got very deeply hurt and a lot will never be the same as it was. Um, I think actually more and more people's eyes are opened all the time about that that was just one thing. There's there's been so many things going on and there still is. And I'm seeing a lot more people be a lot more aware of how led we were and still are in many Mm. ways. So I think... I don't think we'll ever go back to the old normal. I think all of us are a lot wiser than we were in one way or another. Um, but I, I don't, I don't feel um, marginalised like I did then by any stretch. I, yeah, I think that's past. But um, to be perfectly honest, I think there's a lot of us that were in my position that it's really hard to forget and move on. <laughs> I know, I know. We've been there at this point. We had to leave a couple of. I was on uh, one local volunteer organisation. I left at the beginning. Uh, we are out here at a, quite a distance from town. You have to leave play centers and all. And again, you know, it is not personal. One doesn't blame anyone. But due to my stance against the vaccine, there were certainly ramifications for not just me, but my kids. And that certainly went deep. But I, I can't help but ask now, you were talking about paperwork in the beginning and you said mm. about a whole lot of compliance and tick box exercises. There's one that really gets my goat, that accredited employer visa suddenly out here in New Zealand after doing everything. And we have labor, a couple of units for, who are uh, on work visas. You suddenly have this new hoop to jump through. You need to become an accredited employer. You need to tick box an exercise, pay off on nearly $1,000 and suddenly comply with the Modern Slavery Act. That I don't know where they dream this stuff up. Honestly, I don't know where they dream this stuff up. Then there's a winter grazing concerns and whatnot. They just seem to be no end to this. Yeah, I agree. It's it's like we've got to prove ourselves at every turn, isn't it? It's you know, I don't know who who these people are that think that we have to justify our existence to them, <laughs> but that's mm. what it is at every turn. And it, to be honest, it, it it there's a lot of non-productive people making a lot of money out of productive people, okay. and it really really grates. And at some point, it's going to have to give because we're going to become an extremely unproductive country when there's so many people whose only task is to push pens and paper. Completely. Yeah, that, that, that's right, uh, Jas- um, sorry to interrupt, Jasper. Um, when, when the term social licence to operate was first put in front of me, probably in the late, first decade, I knew we had problems. And that term is used more and more and more. And that's uh, why I think it's, 
you know, the, the influence of those words has come through everything you're doing inside your farm gate now, and uh, it's a concern. So, yeah, and, and just going back a step, the discrimination you felt, Bernadette, uh, it's great that you can talk about it. It's great that you can talk about a sort of healing, but isn't it interesting? We All three of us have had experiences in this sphere. Uh, no one says sorry. No one says they got it wrong. Uh, and in fact, you're right, people are now more distant with us than they used to be. Uh, and, you know, we're all very friendly people. So it's, it's an odd phenomena that we're all facing. We were too trusting. And now there's an element of distrust in all of us, I think. So uh, look, being candid about it like you have been is, um, well, it's great for us to all talk about it. Um, and yeah, and be be upfront about it because it has affected us all. Just yeah, that's right. And it, it does feel like it's kind of just been parked and we're supposed to all just forget about it. And it's actually really hard to do. To be perfectly honest, I think now the distancing, um, I don't feel like other people distance me. I feel like I distance myself. And maybe that's something I need to get over. But it's, it, you know, it's that not not being able to forget. You, you forgive and you move on because life's too short not to. But um, there's definitely distance between me and some people that there wasn't distance between before um, because I saw a different side of some people. <laughs> but that's how it goes. It, yeah, we live and learn, don't we? And um, yeah, uh, people I, evolve and things move on. <laughs> I know I can hand on my heart say I was not a cynical person and I absolutely and I mean absolutely detest confrontations and yet that's what it came to. Mm. If I speak to some, you know, family friends who overseas haven't met me for a few years, they they often don't believe what happened. What happened to that person who, you know, who tried to blend into the background? But I think there came a point where many of us found ourselves in that corner, like, right, what do we do here? Mm. Yeah. And not I'd a love comfortable to... place. Yeah, exactly. If it's, if I can go back to what you said about social license, Don, I'd love to. Because um, what I think is really interesting is the whole social license conversation is brought about by people that have a loud voice, media, um, government, people, that kind of stuff. But I, when you actually go to the people who purchase the product... I don't think they care half as much about the stuff that they're supposed to, that, that we're told they care about. And a classic example is, um, you know, carbon-free products, um, you know, and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, my husband's from England and he talks at length about, you know, what he's seen where people walk into a supermarket and, and you hear about these surveys where people are asked, you know, when they're walking into a supermarket, what are the, what are the things that make them buy certain products over another? And they'll say one thing and then when they come out of the supermarket within their trolley, says a completely different thing. And he said, you see it all the time around the supermarkets in Britain as well, where, um, you know, they might go and pick the, the, you know, high value um you know product that's got the nice label on it that lists all these different um values that it has and then you get to the other end of the aisle and there's the two pound frozen chook <laughs> and all of these beautiful um high value products are chucked in the freezer and replaced with frozen chickens for two pounds or whatever it is that amount's probably not correct um which is really interesting so the consumer at the end of the day is driven by money and more and more so you know we're in a cost of living crisis not just in New Zealand but all over the world do you really think people are going to pay over the odds 
for what's what says on a label they, they actually don't care they just want to feed their family um so i just think you know the stuff we're being driven to do in the name of what the consumer wants is an absolute load of rubbish well well it's interesting where i think about 18 years after dr john knight from otago university um developed a um uh a, well presented a paper on uh and i think it was called trust and country image and he came up with a to short form it, very much like you're saying, uh, uh, Bernadette, uh, people say they want um, the best of the best and were prepared to pay for it, but actually they weren't. They buy on price all the time when given the option because, yeah, when you've got um, mum, dad and the kids, uh, you just do have to look for value and not everyone is at that top end of town um, not worrying about where their next dollar comes from. So, yeah, I th- I think 100% right. Uh yeah, we, we say as New Zealand uh, exporters that we're pitching our products to the 14 million elite uh, consumers of the world. Well, good luck with that. Why are we uh, still uh, at the edge of, you know, uh, breaking even in some farms this year? Why are we looking at a zero balance? Um, something's not right. Uh, but anyway, uh, we still do it because, as you said earlier, um, that's what we love. Absolutely. I had a really interesting, uh, you might call it debate discussion with somebody last night about um, He Waka Rekinoa and um, about the principles around that. And I was <laughs> sticking to my guns on that about, you know, they were saying, well, what's the big deal about, you know, shouldn't everybody have to know their number? And I was questioning what value does that add? If, if I know that we're doing everything we can on farm to produce things as efficiently as we can, which we need to do anyway to, um, to be profitable, <laughs> and we're trying to avoid waste as much as we can, how does knowing a number make any difference to anything at all it doesn't it's just more paperwork and then you take that a step further and go okay well if and, and they said well that's so that you can justify whether or not you should you might need to be taxed down the track and I said well th- I, you know that's why we need some bottom lines around around what we are and aren't willing to accept because we know that in New Zealand we produce food you know this is assuming you accept that there's a global warming problem so just make that assumption not everybody accepts that and I get that and I'm not even saying whether or not I do but assuming you accept that there's a global warming problem if there is it's a worldwide problem it's not a problem that New Zealand can fix on its own but if we produce product at lower emissions than anybody else then reducing our production is is only going to increase production allow production to increase somewhere else therefore making the global warming problem worse so Anything we do in New Zealand to reduce our production in the name of global warming is nothing but virtue signalling, and because it's going to actually make the problem worse. And how is that responsible? <laughs> so you know, these debates are going on constantly about are we ticking boxes in the name of what consumers supposedly want, or are we being genuine about the claims we're making? I read your article last year, Bernadette. I think it was titled uh, "Sleepwalking into Food Shortages." And it's almost like no one here seems to acknowledge the fact that just see what happened in Sri Lanka last year. Mm. That did go down really well. But we seem to think that our, I think, what are we, 0.17%? I know it's less than a quarter of a percent of the world's emissions. They're going to make some sort of a massive difference. And it's the same line I hear everywhere, regardless of where I am, be it at council, be it at generally, you know, chatting with somebody. We need to do something or rather... We need to be seen to be doing something. Mm. How did we even get here? 
I don't know, the biggest contribution we could make to produce to reducing global emissions would be to produce more and have somebody else produce less. <laughs> oh, well, and, and in fact, um, Bernadette, unsubsidized production is the international gold standard. That's our emissions trading scheme. That's Sorry, that's our efficiency trading scheme, unsubsidized production. What the heck has happened to this country? They don't revere the fact that we're the cleanest, uh, most untainted by um, regulatory powers in terms of production subsidies or environmental grants, and they still want to screw over uh, to the next level. So I'm, I'm heartened to hear... Um, young leaders like you are standing up tall for this sort of stuff because, you know, it's been 20 years building to a crescendo and we thought we had it beaten in 2003. We thought we had it beaten in 2008, 2011. And it's just, uh, strangely enough, the can's just been kicked down the road and we are getting to the pointy end now because no one has been told the true cost of the net zero concept. Uh, but last night, uh, or, or this week has been the uh, talk of uh, New Zealand Steel's uh, electrification of one of its uh, furnaces at a cost of uh, um, 300 million, 140 from the taxpayer. So 300 million to take 1% of the New Zealand emissions out of the out of the caper uh, means that there's 30 billion involved to do what they want to do. Uh, and it is, as you say, virtue signaling and worse, uh, Blue Scope, who owns that, uh, are able to continue using coal to produce uh, iron in, in Australia. So it makes no sense to me whatsoever. But greenwashing is the name of the show, Bernadette, and uh, that's why we have you on, uh, to <laughs> learn about how the next generation of leaders think. And I think um, you've expressed your case very well. Um, Thank you. So, you know, we'll be keen to have you on, but, um, yeah, half an hour has gone very quickly. Uh, <laughs> and I think uh, we should... We should let you go and um, get organised for your day and catch you back another time. So on behalf of Jaspreet and I, thanks for being on Greenwash today. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Thanks, Bernadette. Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio.